Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. Currently, we are looking at the stories of 1954, and today's episode will focus on the story, A World of Talent. Now, The World of Talent is one of a handful of stories written around this period of time, uh, written in 1954, or published in 1954, including The Golden Man and The Crawlers. And I think Simon Heal My Daughter was also published in 1954. Um, but all these stories together present to us an argument about posthumanism and about, about the posthuman or, or the mutant, if you will, or the, the people with talents. Um, and, this, and, and the world of talent is maybe the major work in this series. I know The Golden Man gets a lot of love. It's certainly one of the first clear definitions of the posthuman, but this is the most complex and the most far ranging and the, the deepest. And it, it, it's really a global or, or even a galactic story in a lot of ways. So it combines certain things about the frontier, about politics, about the posthuman. Uh, and it's a really great story. Um, it, it's, it's on par with his 1953 story, Variable Man, in being kind of career-defining for for our author. So World of Talent was published in Galaxy in October of 1954, and it's currently published in the second volume of, or the third volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, or um, if you're looking at the Citadel Press versions, it's this one second uh, titled Second Variety, and other stories, classic stories by Philip Dick or whatever. Um, so the story is fairly long. It's it's about 30 pages, and that might even qualify as a novelette or something. But certainly it's a longer short story, one of the longer ones in, in the collection. So um, let's just jump into the story. We actually start with kind of a, a, a domestic environment. Um, our character that we meet early on is Tim. And he's actually evading this party that's going on in his house, and he uh, withdraws to his room. While up there, he notices others, quote unquote, others, O-T-H-E-R-S, like um, others in the closet and in his room. He gives up trying to communicate them. And it sounds like he's been trying to do this for a while. But Tim just starts to observe them with fear and excitement. Then we are introduced to Tim's parents more directly. It's Kurt and Julia. They're both precogs and they're both in an arranged marriage. So you know, the government here is trying to really cultivate the people with talent, um, you know, for the use by government or for like really the purposes of those in authority. And one way you do that is you, you, you force people with these talents to breed to see what they get. Right. And this is a common theme in, in literature ever since then. And I don't know if Dick invented this, um, but, you know, he, he's certainly I think being somewhat pioneering here. We see it certainly in Babylon 5 and the way the Psychor and the telepaths are treated in that that story where there's a special kind of whole subculture and government agency where all people with disability are kind of put into it. And then there's a lot of stories in that TV series 
about people being basically forced into marriages or, you know, really being encouraged to cultivate their talents or to pass their talents on to the next generation. And then you'll even see it in works like, uh, to a certain degree, Firestarter by Stephen King sort of does this too, where a couple gets together because of, well, they're both in the same experiment and they, the result of the experiments, they both get kind of low level psychic abilities, but they have this child who's like superhuman. It's not really where they're forced into a marriage. It's more a random chance, but we see here, this is a idea that two people with a talent will give birth to a child, which will be superior to both the parents in hope, like hope, but at least at the very least, they'll carry on this track, the, the, these trends, these talents. Now, the population of the world at this time is quite diverse. You have mutants, you have, which are, I guess, untalented people with some kind of genetic abnormality. Then you have people who are talented, the people with psychic powers, and then you have norms. And these, this population is engaged in an endemic conflict with Terrans. So we realize that actually these people of talent are not really living on Earth. They're trying to, well, the Terrans are trying to prevent the independence of these colonies of abnormals living on these other planets. And really their goal here is to ensure that the, the abnormals, the people with psychic abilities, the talented, and even with them are the mutants, will not overtake humanity and pass by them at some point. So Tim's parents, Julia and Kurt, and they're with a government official named Fairchild, they're discussing this geopolitical situation. And of course, it's for the reader's benefit that they're having this conversation. And they're also talking about the challenges of precogs living together as a couple. Now, Fairchild was really instrumental in the whole secession movement. So he's not a nobody. He was really one of the people who pushed this movement to break free. So now where are our sympathies as a reader at this point? Well, they might, you know, they're probably with these mutants right here. They're feared, they're hated. And so Taran tries to repress them and they fight for their independence, right? This, this kind of narrative of, of independence, of struggling against an external authority. Now, Fairchild demonstrates basically a device that can provide propaganda machines in support of the independence movement and try to get more support among the people, you know, on this planet. So to kind of encourage them to support the independence movement and break away from Earth. Now, remember, the people on this planet are on the colony are not just talented. There's also just straight up mutants and there are norm normals, people who don't reflect these abilities. Now Reynolds, the head of the psychics on the colony, insists that they will win because they're superior to the Terrans who don't have psi powers. So basically the talent will mean that independence is inevitable and victory of these advanced humans will happen eventually. And the party begins to descend into an argument over the strategy for the future. The main tension here is between Fairchild and his supporters who believe in universal colonial identity. And so what they're trying to for is kind of a, a more national identity, um, including size, mutants, and norms. And what I think about this, I'm, I'm reminded of the struggle of like post-colonial states in places like Africa, places where the colonial powers really create arbit created arbitrary borders where there's a lot of ethnic groups. 
you know, and after independence, there was a tension between kind of ethnic identity and efforts at ethno-nationalism and then nationalists who wanted to overcome that and create a national government, right? And, you know, there's a, a book, I forget the name of it, that talks about the conflict between the Igbo and the Hausa in Nigeria. And this was really the issue here. You had both ethnic leaders on both sides and ethnic politics and religious conflicts. And some of this boiled down to violence in the end. But you also had a national government that did want to create balance and not maybe not balance, but certainly a national identity that could overcome that. So you got slogans like all Nigerians are brothers or something like that. That's sort of Fairchild's idea. He wants a mass movement that involves everyone on the colony. So it's more of a colonial rebellion against a mother country. Reynolds, on the other hand, believes in the genetic superiority of size. And so he wants the people with talents to really be a privileged superclass that will usher in a new phase of humanity. So the war is not just against Earth. It's also against the norms and perhaps even just the plain mutants who don't express any clear ability on the colonies as well. So it's about really a, a revolution to create a new superior class, I guess, and to push forward history. Now, we see in other stories of this type, like the Hoodmaker, that Dick tended to see radical revolutionaries as this small group of people usurping authority for their own benefit. He really didn't, doesn't seem too sympathetic to the mass movement. Uh, now, most of his writings before, you know, there's a lot of Maoism in America. And I don't know how much he knew about the Chinese Revolution um, and, or other kind of agrarian mass movements. His model of revolution, I think, is more of the 1917 Soviet model. Now, anyways, for Julia and Kurt, the tension between these two ideas is more personal. They were arranged to be marriage, to be married in order to pass on their talent. But in fact, their son lacks any apparent precognitive abilities. He's a, kind of a failed experiment. So he's a norm. And under Reynolds regime, children like Tim would be eliminated as throwbacks to an earlier stage or at least suppressed in some way. Kurt defends Tim's right to exist, but Julia warns him that he lacks that talent that this lack of talent really makes Tim almost a different species. So there's this anxiety over whether Tim, their child, is really one of them. You know, and that's part of this conflict of posthumanism, this emerging of a new race of talented people. So anyways, Kurt goes to visit a mutant called Big Noodle at school. And we'll come back to him and his ability in a bit. He's kind of important to the story. He leaves Tim with uh, the Psy class authorities there. And now Big Noodle is an obese idiot savant. He has this massive parakinetic ability, meaning he, he can move things with his mind. And he alone is like the defense grid for the colony. Uh, now, this idea of having a talented person be a defense grid is revisited in Time Out of Joint. Although there it's not so much psychic abilities, but... Or maybe a little bit psychic ability, but it's not so clear. It's a, I'm, I'll have to go revisit it, and I'll, I'll come back to it when I read Time Out of Joint again. Um, but he can basically stop missile attacks from Terry using his ability. That's how powerful he is. Kurt meets also with Sally, a 13-year-old teacher at the school with the power of animation, meaning she can bring things to life. Kurt needs Big Noodle to bring 
path to him instead of his normal routine using using Big Noodle to send him to Pat. So how does this work? So normally Big Noodle can also be used to like move people around and instead he wants Pat brought to him. Now, who is Pat? Pat is a 19-year-old from Proxima 4 and is currently Kurt's lover. So Big Noodle is kind of worked into this adulterous relationship. Now, of course, Kurt's marriage is arranged and... Of course, in an arranged marriage, you might expect adultery to be a bigger um, problem. Now, Kurt eventually leads Pat into Fairchild's office. Now, typically, mutants who show an ability can be promoted to the class of a psi after a meeting such as this. But Kurt reveals that Pat, his lover, is actually a design mutant and eligible for sterilization at, or is designated a mutant. So he's not really fully... Um, a teep. She's not one of these superior people, and therefore under under kind of the Reynolds plan, she'd be eligible for sterilization at twenty first. In fact, she's a fourth class a, a mutant, not a mutant, or a fourth class uh, talented person, not an actual, uh, not a real mutant. She's actually an anti psi. In fact, that she can nullify telepathic probes. Now, in this case, it's. Well, it's not an apparent talent, right? The anti-size, it's a passive talent. So that's why she's not deemed talented initially because it's not something active she can do. Other people have active talents. They can read minds. They can move things. But she's just preventing people from reading her. And therefore, she's not really clearly identified. And that's sort of what Kurt is doing here. He's telling Fairchild, who, of course, doesn't want to have conflict between the normals and the tele telepaths and the other talented people. Um, so he, she's being introduced here to, you know, what should we do about this, this figure, right? And if there's one, there could be more anti-size. After the meeting, Kurt and Pat are having coffee in Kurt's house. Now, Julia is pretty cold to the idea of Pat staying with them. They discuss his affair with Pat and Kurt explains that her, her innocent, Pat's innocence was the major attraction for him. So what, once again, we have an adulterous relationship, um, but this one's sort of out in the open and discussed openly, and it, it seems less of an important affair because Kurt and Julia were in this, essentially, a, an arranged marriage anyways. So anyways, they, re they retrieved him from school, and Kurt and Pat discussed the ramifications of her Pat's anti-psi abilities. It's actually possible that every psi power will lead to the development of an anti-psi ability that matches it. So... The parakinetic will have the anti-parakinetic at some point, you know, or the prison just like the anti the psi will breed eventually or lead to the uh, an anti-psi. This is what Kurt believes is nature's way of restoring balance to you know to the universe or to humanity. They take Tim to the ocean. He likes it because there's really no other place for he likes it because there's no place for the quote-unquote others to hide on the beach. So the others who were introduced in the opening pages of the story are returned into the narrative at this point, but more as a threat. Like, he likes being on the beach because there's no, basically, closets for them to hide into. Pat and Kurt consider that size have maybe long lived among humanity, but they're often misunderstood as saints. And I think this is a really fascinating idea he introduces here. Uh, and I, now, it's not from my... I don't think it's original, but uh, this idea that, like, these weirdos from the past 
mad mystics or saints or prophets may have just been people of some sort of psychic ability. Now, Kurt discusses, this is a bit later on in the story after a break, but Kurt discusses opening up of a fourth category with Fairchild. Basically, making this fourth category of, of size or of, of people with psi power immune from sterilization laws. And the idea is that you want to protect a talented person, right? Of course, people like Reynolds would really hotly resist the possibility of anti-size or anything else that could check their power. But Fairchild has this general humanistic approach that makes them pretty sympathetic to uh, this idea. And of course, the law here is is trying to the one point to promote the development and creation of psi abilities, but also prevent the introduction of, of mutations that don't have these positive abilities to them. And that's the mutants. The mutants are kind of like the, you know, I guess the person with the three eyes or something, right? That does, it doesn't have a clear or four arms or something like that. Someone who doesn't have like a clear, they're not post-humans, right? Keep them out. But I'm, I don't think regular normals are being sterilized. Reynolds would want that, of course. Um, and now Fairchild wants to do this, but and create this fourth category of official psi talented people, the anti-psi, but certainly knows Reynolds would oppose this. Um, Kurt eventually tells Pat the good news that he thinks there's going to be this fourth category and she won't have to be sterilized. And Pat begins making future plans for her life without the burden of relocation to a camp and the sterilization. But during this, she's murdered by a poison dart. Reynolds reveals himself and explains to Kurt that they have been following him ever since he visited um, Reynolds pre pre previously. Pat dies painlessly, he claims. Kurt takes Pat's body and escapes the bar. He finds Sally at the school. She has informed on Kurt. Over Sally's protest, Kurt enters Big Noodle's chamber and explains to him how the core of psychics is taking over. Big Noodle, who is deathly afraid of Sally. Remember, Sally is this teacher at uh, the school who has the power of animation. Big Noodle kills her by transporting large plastic blocks to fall into her body. Remember, he's a parakinetic, and he, that's, that's an easy thing for him to do. I mean, he can destroy missiles. So it's not a big thing to kill someone. Well, it's a big thing, but it's not difficult for him to do. He then transports Kurt and Pat Pat's body, anyways, to Proxima 4. Um, and in her last moments, Sally transforms Big Noodle into a body of, into a mass of spiders, which eventually kill him and along with him, killing the colony's defenses against Terra. So it all kind of comes down in this climatic moment where Big Noodle dies and with it, really the hopes of, of independence. On Proxima 4, Kurt, he's now with Tim, who was also transplanted, transported by Big Noodle. He seeks out a Resurrector, which is another Psy talent, who can bring Pat back to life. Kurt reflects on all that he has lost. The core will eventually take over government from Fairchild, he realizes. Reynolds is too powerful and too well organized. Terra can attack the colonies without Big Noodle to defend them, leading to a prolonged war for independence, or maybe their destruction. And if they fail to find a Resurrector, Tim and Kurt will be alone. 
Kurt sees an old man and later a small child. Kurt learns that these are the others, the people that Tim was afraid of from earlier uh, in the story. And these are actually Tim at different points in time. Rather than just producing a mutant, Julia and Kurt actually gave birth to the ultimate precog. So Tim was not a normal. He was actually another new talent that's emerged. Um, in a way, we got here kind of a narrative of nuclear proliferation, right? So the talents emerge and then something superior comes along with it or something to counter it. And the whole kind of Cold War mentality is in this story for sure, um, you know, because kind of it's an arms race almost. And nature's fighting this arms race by creating new talents that can check the power of others, right? Now here, what Tim is is basically a, a, a type of precog but the ultimate kind, because, well, Tim, the old man version of Tim explains that the quote unquote central other, which is Tim in this time, like the, the temporally bounded Tim, he's not yet realized how his ability works, but that they can change the present by changing the past. So not just knowing the future or he can actually change the future. So that what makes it, that's what makes him the ultimate precog. The anti-size, they're told, must be allowed to prosper or the future will be bleak. Only by checking the power of the size and the other people of talent will there be a stable future. Tim then shows Kurt a timeline where Pat is alive and his life still has meaning and he hasn't lost um, his love. So that's, that's the story. Um, as I said, there's a lot going on in this story. It's quite good, I think. Uh, it's... Probably my favorite of the post-human stories. Um, I don't know if it's the pinnacle, because there's still Simon Heal My Daughter, which also deals with some of these issues. It's quite similar in a lot of ways. But it's really Dick's reaching the culmination of his early experiments in several major motifs. In this story, we see the maturation of, of the frontier motif. We see here a fully Promethean world emerging from the former colonies. And this is actually going to be picked up in the next story to Souvenir, which will be the very next episode, which is another frontier story. So he's not done with it entirely, but here we have the frontier being the center of this Promethean projection of humanity into the future. His study of posthumanism began in the Golden Man, and it's fully mastered in this story. We see in this one of his more mature and honest depictions of adultery as well. The tension between Diversity and homogeneity in government is explored. Is government best off as kind of a democratic mixture of, of different competing agencies, kind of the way Madison imagined it? Or is it best as a run as an efficient bureaucracy centrally controlled by the best and brightest or the most talented in this case? Now, this is a very amazingly rich story, um, and it's, it's really one of the peaks of Dick's early efforts. It's as rich a world as any of his early novels, in fact. Um, even some of the early novels. We see here that he's grown out of his desire for a cheap and easy twist ending, which plagues some of his early stories. Instead, we have a very emotionally rich and promising ending. Despite this, you know, this hasn't been a story that I think has been analyzed nearly enough as it should have. And most scholars of Philip Dick really don't say much about this story. And partially that's because they tend to gravitate to the novels and the older novels, right? The, you know, the early stories sometimes, not, not universally, but sometimes gets uh, short shrift. The central political t tension in this story works on a couple levels. 
Broadly speaking, we are in a divided empire. Terra has relocated the mutants and the size to the colonies, in a sense to kind of isolate them and protect themselves. And these colonies are also populated with people without any ability and just mutants. This is a solution we've seen before in stories such as, and we've seen it not being effective, right? Like the crawlers, this idea of just dealing with the post-human by isolating them. To preserve humanity, humanity plus the post-human is moved far and far away. Of course, they soon develop feelings that they are superior to normal humans. They develop their own kind of cultural autonomy, their political institutions, and eventually they fight for their independence. Now, a second tension here is how to manage a new society where part of the population deems itself superior to the rest. You have the liberal voice, Fairchild, or maybe a better, not maybe not liberal is the best term, but the nationalist argument, the idea that the colony is a nation with its own fully developed identity that transcends these different factions within it. He wants a diverse society. Reynolds thinks that humanity plus the post-human should rule the rest, ensuring its own power through eugenic manipulation. And in fact, the government's already engaged in eugenics, um, probably despite the wishes of people like Fairchild, but it's doing it anyways, mostly to keep dangerous mutant strains from, from the population, but it is there. Um, genetic eugenics this is in many ways the story of much of modern history and certainly the 20th century where you have tensions between the national and and the ethnic or between the authoritarian and the democratic diversity and in, in homogeneity racism inequality and exclusion are very real and as devastating as ever and we're seeing more of this with the rise of political movements that are asserting ethno-nationalism as opposed to diversity. The story does end with hope, though, telling the reader that Reynolds' future is not only is not the only future. There needs to be there can be other options for us. But we need to cultivate a society along different values if we're ever going to get there. And how that kind of works in the story is is I guess openness to our own limitations letting go of our chance to be a superior or just be the people in power, right? That's something Reynolds can't do. Reynolds can't give up his desire to be the top of the food chain. Fairchild, you know, is more open to being liberal, but it's, that's not enough, right? Because you're still going to have this clear superiority and talent. What you need is the anti said we need balance, I guess. And that means accepting that there are going to be people who can check our power. So in a way, what we end up with the solution to authoritarianism is checks and balances. So in a way, maybe he's a good American. Dick is continuing his revision of the mutant science fiction of the 1950s, which tended to present mutants as superior and benevolent. Dick, living in the wake of the Holocaust, of course, will have none of this. There is no good reason, given human history, to think that post-humans would not ultimately see themselves as the inheritors of the earth. And there are a couple stories where Dick confesses that this might not be an entirely bad thing, uh, such as Planet for Trans Transients suggests that. But in that case, it's clearly the humanity has given up its claim to earth through the destruction of the planet. Here, you know, they're... Well, it's complicated because on the colony... Even, you know, there's a question like what would be the long term fate of Reynolds plan if he were to achieve his goals on the colony? Would it then be to triumph over Terra, too?
So would they see themselves as inheritors of Earth fully? And then they'd become back as conquerors, of course. Now, I really like what I mentioned it a couple times in this whole podcast. And, and whenever post-humans come up, I can't stop thinking about it. And it's, I know it's an old television series, but I think Babylon 5 really did a good job with depicting people with psychic powers and how they can be a threat to democracy and, and stability and, and diversity and how they might see themselves as the real supermen. And what they might be capable of and how they might be able to achieve power through government agencies. And there's a lot of a lot done with that in, in that TV series. Reynolds is the realization of this fear. And this tension is much more fully explored in A World of Talent than in The Golden Man. So it So with that, I will go. I was actually being called um, down. So good timing. I will leave, maybe I'll come back to this. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, what I want to say is I really urge Philip K. Dick fans who haven't read this story or have only read it once to take a second look at World of Talent and, and connect what they've learned about Dick since then to what he says here. I think he says a lot. He covers a lot of his themes, especially a lot of the themes that were covered up to this point in his career. It's actually a very filmable story. I'd like to see this one. someone take a shot at filming this one. Uh, it would be kind of a big budget thing. It, because there is a lot of action and a lot that can be developed. I know it's still a short story, so there'd have to be kind of stuff added to it, but there's a lot to add to, um, and there's a lot of material. that, Like the noodle, you know, there could be a lot more said about the noodle or Sally or a lot of these other mutants. And So uh, with that, I will uh, let you go. Um, I'll come back with another episode looking at the frontier, and it'll be Souvenir. So until next time, I'll uh, enjoy. I hope you're enjoying reading Philip K. Dick along with me. That living dies, that living dies.